0: Buddy, Jamie Uretsky, back on the lighter side of baseball. And this week we're talking about mostly Dave Nelson, and it's always easy to talk about Nellie. we got a bunch of Nellie's friends that are going to be on this podcast, and they've already been on a couple other podcasts. And so, you know, it's hard to believe uh, COVID-19 has caused everybody to kind of... uh, uh, stay in place at their house and so some people are doing things that are productive and i'm doing a podcast every couple of days and bugging friends that have absolutely nothing else to do they can't duck me and so we've been fortunate to have a number of nelly's buddies uh over the past couple of weeks and uh you know starting with dwayne stats uh, we've had bob solis we've had sammy solis we had rick waits a long time ago we've had uh john Wathan. Uh, and uh, the other day we had Greg Murphy. Murph uh, has known Nellie longer than any of us knew Nellie. And uh, he was in uh, Pawtucket in 1966 when Murph was 15 years old and saw Nellie beat the parent team when Dave was at uh, the A Pawtucket Indians. So that was at McCoy Field, beautiful McCoy Field. And it was filmed by Murph's dad, another good friend of Dave's, Murph's dad took his uh, Kodak 8mm to the ballpark and they got some uh, footage, which we're going to try to get, but that may be a tough call. You just never know. Murph did send some pictures. I didn't even recognize Nelly. He looked like about a 16-year-old lean and mean dude. I mean, he was ready to roll. And uh, even back then, posing with everybody for pictures, and Murph then went on to talk about where he went to Fenway Park and saw Dave's first Major League hit. And lo and behold, that was not as a right-handed batter as most of Dave's hits were, but he got that hit left-handed as Alvin Dark uh, suggested that he bat left-handed. So we had Murph, and that's a fun interview, and that that's a separate podcast that ought to be getting posted here any day. Uh, we then had Greg Harris, and Greg Harris is an attorney, a successful attorney, friend of Dave's. Met Dave when... When uh, Harris Murph, too many Gregs. Everybody's a Greg. In fact, we're going to have another Greg coming on the show. Greg Harris was a vendor uh, when he wasn't going to law school, and when he was under twenty-one, he had to sell various products. Apparently, the most lucrative product, and uh, Greg, being the entrepreneurial stud that he is, uh, grabbed the the peanut uh, vendor job because that was probably easier to do and make more money flinging bags of peanuts around. This time he came out to the ballpark early, met Dave. Dave told him to bring his glove the next day. And uh, as Harris tells the story, the next thing he knew, he was standing in the outfield next to Carl Yastrzemski and shagging balls for the White Sox and the Red Sox and then also catching some balls for Minnie Minoso. How could could your day get any better? So when uh, he was selling peanuts, he met Dave and uh, knew Dave and was a good friend of Dave's through the rest of Dave's life. Uh, The next day um, uh, on the podcast, we're going to have Scotty Ayer. Scotty Ayer is a friend of Dave's and a friend of Greg Harris's, and uh, that was a fun interview. My goodness gracious, Scotty's a good guy. Thirteen years in the major leagues, five postseasons. Unbelievable. We had John Wathan, a teammate of Dave's, and John went on to manage the Kansas City Royals. After playing with the Royals for ten years, he also managed in the minor leagues. That was fun. Dwayne Stass was a fun interview. Dwayne was Dave's partner in the uh, uh, Cubs organization and broadcast the first night game with uh, Nellie along with Steve Stone and Harry Carey. And uh, what would happen was Dwayne, who was, you know, right there below Harry, but one of the two featured announcers would go over and do TV for three innings of the nine, and Harry would come over and do three innings with Dave. And so first night game, August eighth, 1988, lo and behold, uh, you know, it just wasn't the exp- it wasn't going to happen, you know. Whether the gods were founded on that, the baseball gods in heaven didn't want a ball game uh, at Wrigley at night, so they rained <laughs> it out. The first night game happened to be the next night, August 9th. We attended both. It was fun. It was a great milestone for everybody, especially Dave and Twin uh, Stats. So we had that, and then today we're going to be joined on the phone by Greg Meyer, who was a pitcher at TCU and uh, currently is an NFL back judge, and he was a referee in one of the Super Bowls uh, recently, not the Super Bowl that I went to with my son, the uh, Kansas City Chiefs winning the Super Bowl, and the last sporting event that I think was held in front of, well, there's probably some NBA games and NHL games and maybe some PGA games, but the last... Game I saw with fans at it was the Chiefs beating the San Francisco 49ers coming from behind in the fourth quarter to win that game. So that was exciting, but Greg Meyer wasn't there to referee. Now, we're going to get Greg on the phone briefly. Then I hoped after that to have Jeff Newman. Hope after that to have um, um, some other people that uh, knew Dave and uh, maybe get Bob Sleeves back on. You never know who's going to call in or volunteer to uh, come on the lighter side of baseball. You just have to be patient and wait. So in a few minutes we'll get uh, Greg on the phone and then we will be back with segment two. But I hope you're enjoying on the lighter side of baseball. I hope you're enjoying a little bit of reminiscing about Nelly. I like to reminisce about Nelly all the time. I think I reminisce about Nelly on virtually every podcast. This is probably... I lose count. Somewhere between 60 and 70 podcasts that we've done, and I'm sure on each one I have talked about Nellie, and I've talked about how uh, you know there's so many good memories with Dave, and some of the memories came uh, when I was uh, watching him play baseball, some of them when he was coaching, and some of them after his coaching career. But uh, it's clear that uh, every job he had in baseball, from playing to coaching to uh, broadcasting, he did with a flair. And he also enjoyed, uh, after the game, with the, you know, back in the day when we didn't have much money in the back, uh, we would go to free happy hours. That's where we had our Billy Martin encounter. That's where we'd go to have Boodle's gin. And uh, from time to time, we would enjoy a, a gigantic free block of cheddar cheese and crackers to make sure that, you know, we had something to eat when we were having our Boodle's gin. From there, flash, you know, fast forward 45 years of great friendship and, and, and great mutual uh, respect, and uh, I can't say enough about him, his family. Uh, his mom was great. His son, may he rest in peace, was also a spectacular kid. And, uh, you know, it's the way life is. And uh, I'm just happy that I had 45 years of getting to... Uh, spend time, a lot of time with uh, Nelly, as did a lot of other people. So anyway, not going to get too far down the road on this, but uh, we're going to uh, be back in a few minutes with Greg Meyer, and uh, then that'll be our segment two on the lighter side of baseball, and who knows how many segments we'll have on, uh, on this fine day of trying to uh, get closer to opening day of Major League Baseball. So we'll be right back And again, thanks for listening on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or my Facebook page. Thanks again, and we'll be right back. Hey, everybody, Jamie Retzke back on the lighter side of baseball. And today, and today only, We are deviating a little bit and going from our baseball guests to an NFL guest. If you can believe it, we have Greg Meyer on the phone, a friend of Dave Nelson's from a long ways back, and a current NFL referee. So, Greg, thank you for coming on the podcast. How are you doing?
1: Good. My pleasure.
0: Oh, man, this is a treat. Are you there? Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you're there. That's... uh, Part of the problem with the uh, last Friday with Murphy broke the set. We had to shut down for two days.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've got one of these older cell phones, so sometimes I'll get a voicemail, and it's never uh, the phone never rings. So uh, technical difficulties follow me at times.
0: No, absolutely. Tell me. Uh, uh, let's start off with what you're doing to uh, to pass the time during this uh, coronavirus COVID nineteen situation that we're all dealing with?
1: Well, I'll tell you, the uh, I've lived in this home in Fort Worth for 35 years, and so I've always made comments that when I get enough time or I get a little time, I'm going to do this or that. Well, that list was about 20 deep, and if you want to have a lunch in the cleanest place that you can find, it be my attic. And so we started kind of from the top down, and my wife and I just kind of went through the house and did a lot of things that we really... We're trying to get to, finally got to, donated some stuff, uh, you know, just kind of top to bottom. So it's been a long 30 days, but a productive 30 days.
0: Now, did you always live in Fort Worth or did you uh, have other parts of Texas or the U.S. where you uh, resided for a while?
1: Yes, yeah, so I grew up. Uh, in Wayzata, Minnesota really, wow. as, a, as a youngster kept migrating south so high school was Tulsa and then came down and played baseball at TCU so I've kept, kept moving south, finally settled into Fort Worth here, been here for guys since 1983, went to college uh, here 77 through 81 and then Houston for a brief time back to Fort Worth, been here ever since
0: well, I played baseball. Well, actually, I watched baseball when it was the Southwest Conference and yep, I that's what I played yep. I was on the uh, SMU Mustang team before they eliminated baseball. Yeah. <laughs> and I re- I don't remember now, but looking back, I remember another Horn Frog, TCU Horn Frog that uh, that I guess I watched play it would have been Jeff Newman. Yes. Yep. Uh-oh.
1: Yeah, I I don't. I never met Jeff, but certainly knew of him. And uh, yeah, SMU. I think dropped baseball in 1980,
0: maybe. You know, it took them a while to recover. We we could not have. There could not have been a worse Division One team in the history of baseball <laughs> than the two years I was on that team. I and back then you didn't have a limit on baseball games, and I think we were like six and eighty my freshman year, and worst place my, my sophomore. I mean. I don't think there's ever been any team ever as bad as we were. Oh, we got beat well, by everybody. I was,
1: when we were playing SMU, they were playing at Revichon Park. Yeah. Do you guys play on campus or at Revichon?
0: We played on what uh, you know became the track, and then it expanded when they when they expanded the football field and moved the okay. SMU games home from the. Texas Stadium, Cotton Bowl, every place they played. So we played, it was right on the street, right on the uh, border of the street of the uh, baseball field, the street, and then the SAE house. And the guys in the SAE fraternity would sit (laughs) on their roof, drink beer, and just, you know, had a great seat for really bad baseball.
1: Oh, that's hilarious. That's great stuff.
0: Well, and interestingly, and we'll, we'll get the the TCU Hornfrogs in a minute. Our coach was a guy named Bob Finlay who not only was the basketball announcer at Moody Coliseum, but he's the guy in 1935 that was the second string quarterback but somehow he threw the pass that got SMU into the into the Rose Bowl for the 1935 Wow. Roseville, so they, uh, you know, gave him a lifetime of what do you want to do, and he, he had played minor <laughs> league baseball. I think he was when I was playing on the team, he was about sixty, and nobody could hit as well as he could, and that showed you why we had some problems. But wow, your your team's probably yeah, Rivershawn Park that was after me. But as I as I look at this, uh, I believe that your paths crossed with uh, Nelly back at the TCU baseball program, correct?
1: Yeah, so I was. That was 1980. I was a junior, 78. Yeah, I was a junior that year. And excuse me, this is back, obviously, when you have a head coach and assistant and kind of a trainer guy that did everything else. And here comes an ex-pro player, uh, and you know what a gift! What a great guy! Number one, he fit right in with us and to have somebody like him around you every day, it just changed the whole atmosphere of the team and everybody, you know, just got along with him great. And I think he'd been off the field maybe a couple of years or something, but everybody knew who he was. Right. And just to see the difference out there and how he carried himself, how he acted. I mean, he just, he jumped in the batting cage and, roll off about, you know, 10 line drives, one hoppers off the fence. And, uh, you know, you just watch how he conducted himself, and what he did. You knew that was a special guy.
0: Oh, that's cool. How do you look in that purple uniform?
1: You know, <laughs> not bad. We had the white pants, the purple top. You know, Nelly was in great shape. And, you know, he just, the way he just carried himself, uh, it, just, it just raised your confidence level. But, yeah, the uniforms back then, <clears throat> a little more, you know, I I guess I don't know really how you would describe those. You know, now they're much more, uh, uh, I don't know, I I like the the newer uniforms. But back, uh, you know, back, I don't even remember what number he had. I wish I remembered what number he had. But he'd go down and coach first base and uh, just fun to, just fun. I just had these pictures of him running around the field out there. And, you know, how how much of a help he was for us during that
0: year. Oh, that's, that's cool. Now, um, how long was he there during the period of time you were there?
1: Yeah, so he was there one year, and then the next year the White Sox picked him up, and he was coaching for the White Sox the right. following year. So my senior year, when the White Sox would come to town, play the Rangers, Texas Rangers, We'd head out there and, and hang out with him. He'd treat us great, bring us in the clubhouse, take care of us. I mean, I mean, the, the guy was just, I can't describe how, how nice and professional he treated all of us. It was just a thrill. Yeah, he was just there one year, but he made such an impact.
0: Yeah, isn't it nice to have somebody that, no matter if you talk to somebody like Murph, who knew him in, the 1960s, all the way to guys that knew him in the Brewers organization before he passed away in 2018, and everybody in the world has the same thing to say about him. He's just a great guy and had all the time in the world to talk to anybody about anything.
1: You know, the interesting thing, all you guys know him so differently than I do. So when I'm sitting around listening to Murph for you or, you know, just guys sitting around talking about uh, Coach, I I just learned more about him on every story because I just knew him at a separate level. He had a house out, uh, Anybody's familiar with the Fort Worth area, he had a house out at Eagle Mountain Lake. Oh, yeah. And I remember a couple of parties he threw out there for the team. and he, You know, just how he could relate to you, even though you knew he was older, you know, kind of retired, but he'd been there. He knew what he was talking about, and this is, you know, the Southwest Conference, high level baseball. I mean, some guys that, you know, really we played the Texas teams and Rice teams and A and M. I mean, there's some great players through there, but you know, just to have a guy that had been there and had done it, and just the way he treated all of us, the way he could, you know, he could treat you as a coach, treat you as a man, treat you as a friend. You just it was just, and anyway, he was only there one year, and, and all of my peers, my teammates, just remember him so fondly. He made such an impact on everyone.
0: Well, not only did he get along great with with most people, but he not only was a outstanding player before he got hurt, but he was. I always thought he was not only a good manage managerial material, but. But could this guy pick out talent that was going somewhere? Yeah. He had an amazing ability to scout out people.
1: Yeah, that's why he never talked to me about playing pro baseball. <laughs> that's how talented he was. We yeah. always talked about graduate school and life after baseball. Cause
0: exactly. <laughs> and I'm sure
1: there's a couple other guys on the team he had different conversations with. But you, you hit it right on, Jamie. He's, uh, I, just, I don't know. It was just so much fun to watch him out there working with the guys and how he could communicate with them. And he just made everybody around him a better person.
0: Well, it's interesting. I I met him in '73 when when uh, actually Murph was living with him. He made the All Star team. hit a ton of home runs. Was the Rangers MVP. Played with Hargrove and Fergie Jenkins and and Tom Grave and and Lenny Randall. And uh, just you know, it was fun for me because I was in law school and I ditched law school and and somehow Dave and I. Uh, became friends after I met him on on an airplane flight of all places. But fast forward to, when he was done playing in the major leagues, he um, took a job with Brad Corbett's company who owned the Rangers. And I met him in and this is this is the the opposite side of of Dave Nelson. We met him in Columbia, Maryland, and he was selling kitchen cabinets out of a station wagon he had all these samples and we met dave at a restaurant and i was in the military i was about to get out of the military and it's probably 1978 and he pulls into the parking lot he's got a you know sport coat on looking dapper as he always did but I've never seen a sadder Dave Nelson in my you know. And it was such a contrast because the guy's always up. It was it had to be the worst job he'd had since he had to go be a reserve in the United States Army. And luckily, he got a job broadcasting for the Royals about uh, six months later to to finish out the nineteen seventy nine season broadcasting uh, with the Kansas City team. So man, that was just that sticks in my mind. And of course. You knew him right in, uh, right in that era where then he came to TCU and then he filled in for Tommy LaSort at the winter meetings, gave a speech on base running, and uh, Roland Heeman with the White Sox hired him. It was you know, just an amazing uh, ability to go give a speech, get hired, and then go to spring training as a minor league instructor and, and make, get a promotion to the major leagues. And as you know, that's just the way Dave was.
1: Yeah. And then I was lucky enough <clears throat> when I was, uh, uh, after I graduated from TCU ended up being a banker in Fort Worth and then some travel with that. And then I'd always try to find him on the road with whatever team he was with in whatever capacity. Sure. And so I'd hit it. I'd see him periodically on the road and gosh, he just, you know, I remember being in New York. I think he was with the Indians at the time. Uh, and invited me to, you know, the breakfast, tickets to the game, just treat you like royalty, like you're the only guy there. And so it was fun as I as I uh, progressed in my professional career, banking career, um, you know, just seeing him in different parts of the country with different teams and, uh, you know, how he just continued to work his way through so many different uh, major league opportunities.
0: Well, and in conjunction with that time period I know you started refereeing college football at some point in there how did you get interested in refereeing and what uh, what gave you that bug
1: well if you'd have seen me at TCU when you only go one and two thirds and you give up five runs the rest of the time you're on the you know in the dugout uh you know complaining to the umpire so if you'd known me in college being a, a game official of any type would have stunned you beyond <laughs> belief. But I, when I left TCU, I was working for Amico, uh in Houston, working at about 4.30. Some guys at the office were uh, junior high or high school uh, football officials. And I was looking to make a little extra money, had nothing going on. So I went out and uh, joined them in the fall. I just fell in love with it. I just, so I did, you know, I did a little baseball umpiring, but you know, the kids can't throw strikes. There's no time limit on it. So it just kind of beat me down, but I really enjoyed football. It had a clock. You could manage your time. And I just, I really enjoyed the sport and the guys I was doing it with. And that's kind of what got me going, put a little extra money in my pocket. And, just kind of meandered my way through uh, the lower levels, mainly just trying to, to uh, you know, make a little bit of money. But I really enjoyed the fraternity of the guys I was doing it with once I got back to Fort Worth and uh, met a lot of the local guys here. And a, a bunch of the guys, interestingly enough, that were football officials in Fort Worth also were TCU baseball game officials that I would sit on the dugout with, unbeknownst to me, uh, that they were also going to be somebody I would meet in my future and just unload on them. I mean, I was unmerciful in the dugout. It just, you know, when you don't have any talent, you got to make up uh, for it for something else. Hey, so, there's
0: a knack to harassing officials. <laughs>
1: I, so I, I was awful and then I'd end up seeing these guys when I got into uh, football they were so gracious they remembered me, clearly remembered uh, who I was and uh, very embarrassing but humbling at the same time and so to be honest with you out on the field now you gotta say something pretty bad uh, to even get my attention uh, given how uh, much of a mouth I was uh, in my collegiate
0: days well it's impressive to have the temperament and demeanor to referee any sport, but to move through high school, college, and into the NFL ranks, man, tell tell me how that all happened because that's pretty big time.
1: Well, the, we're always looking for lower level game officials in any sport at any time. So if anybody's out there interested, you know the the, the lower levels are dying for uh, officials. And I was lucky enough um, to, you know, high school, if you're interested in working high school, there's plenty of opportunities to do that. The funnel starts to get a little more narrow when you start to get into college. And so I was lucky enough to work some high school games with a uh, crew chief in the the, uh, Lone Star Conference, a guy named Charlie Henderson, who was nice enough to bring me on to his crew. So I worked uh, Lone Star football. And then I was very lucky to be uh, involved in uh, game officiating when these conferences started to consume each other. So, 95, when North Texas got into the Big West in football, the Big 12 was forming with the Big 8 the Southwest Conference. And all of these things were changing rapidly. I was lucky enough to kind of run into the right people and get some opportunities to work the Western Athletic Conference, the Big West, and the Big 12 football. And then years ago, it's been defunct now for a while, but the uh, NFL Europe. I was lucky enough to be invited by the NFL into the NFL Europe program.
0: Okay, yeah.
1: And had some great trips to Europe, met some just phenomenal friends for life, was lucky enough to meander through that, and ultimately in 2002, the NFL – Brought me into the
0: league. That's really cool, and you've had a great, successful career in the NFL. They haven't, uh, I guess, from a fan standpoint, the definition. You know, the referees don't exactly become common, common uh, uh, observations of fans. But to main, you know, to not get, I guess, fired seems to me <laughs> to be quite a, quite a great accomplishment, let alone progress as as you have through the various referee positions.
1: Well I you know, I've been very blessed. This will start my nineteenth year this year. I'm a back judge, so I'm very rarely on television. You know, that's kind of for the Ed Hockley is retired now, but a lot of the referees folks are used to seeing in the white hat to make the announcements, I'm about 30 yards from that guy most of the time. <laughs> so you can survive a little longer when they don't see you very much, but it's a terrific fraternity of folks that I have the pleasure to, to work with, and they're all hard workers. We don't get them all right. I sure try to, and uh, it's just a very challenging and rewarding uh, career. I've enjoyed every minute of
0: it. Well, I know that you've had the privilege and benefit of working a Super Bowl, isn't that right?
1: I did. I worked Super Bowl 44. the oh. uh the, one the Saints one. It was the Colts and the Saints down in Miami, so that was just a thrill of a lifetime.
0: Well, and for everybody out there, Greg not only was a mediocre pitcher, he at least made the box <laughs> scores. He was a, a determined, tenacious official, not to mention his career in banking, but He's also been such a great supporter of Open Arms Home for Children that uh, we are all very blessed to have been uh, affiliated with through Bob Solis and through Dave Nelson and the golf tournament. And I know Greg uh, has always generously made donations to that cause, not, not to mention teaming up with Greg Murphy uh, when we were playing up at Whistling Strait. So I know that uh, all of us with Open Arms Home for Children, all the children who we had the benefit of seeing in January, certainly appreciate your generosity. It's very, very kind of you. And the generosity that, that I know, uh, in addition to a lot of the other things you do, are two Super Bowl tickets that you've always been kind enough to donate to, uh, to that cause and and it's greatly appreciated
1: yeah and even better our uh the referee association national football league referee association which is the football game officials uh we're donating uh, last year we donated two hopefully we'll donate two again to open arms the guys feel it's such a worthwhile uh a cause that uh you know we we have certain super bowl tickets we allocate to charity uh, and Open Arms, is uh, we did that in 2019 and sure hope to do it again in 2020.
0: Well, let me, let me tell you a funny story about that that you probably haven't heard. Um, we went down to Open Arms for the dedication of the Uncle Davey uh, home for the, the kids that are transitioning out of living on the, on the main property and moving to get independ- more independent. And uh, my wife Kay and I were down there with Solis and a lot of other people. And so this was right before the Super Bowl. And we get back to Chicago. And uh, one of the board members calls and says, Hey, uh, I hear you're interested in going to the Super Bowl. And I go, You know, maybe if the Bears were in it, but I guess I like my home and I am from Kansas City now. So I guess I could do that. Why? Well, the guy who bid on the tickets. Was a Packer fan, and the Packers didn't get there, and he doesn't. He wants somebody to buy him out of the tickets. I said, "All right, I would be more than happy to buy him out of the tickets." So I ended up going, and they were great seats. Thank you.
1: Yeah, it's interesting because we never know where the seats are going to be until they physically show up. Right. And uh, so, so I think this year they're going to electronic tickets i think you had the actual tickets this year right? i'm,
0: I'm looking, looking at it right now i had a yeah. i've got my little chiefs uh, necklace or whatever with the ticket in a you know whatever those plastic things are called that i paid 15 bucks to get. Oh, yeah yeah <laughs> i that's
1: hate
0: ele- i I, I i hate electronic tickets no, i just sure. hate them
1: yeah yeah that's how we As game officials, we get two tickets to each game. Some are electronic, and some aren't. And the difficulty of getting those to the folks you want to get them to, or picking up extras from guys—it's it's uh, it's, that electronic ticket process is uh, horrible.
0: It's horrible. I had um, a lot of people came up for the Kansas City Chiefs when they played the Bears. We've got a place in Chicago and a place in Kansas City, so I bought from various sources twelve tickets for the Bears versus the Chiefs at Soldier Field this year. And I kept the four in the, uh, in the club level on the 50-yard line uh, for, you know, my wife and I and then some friends that are huge Chiefs fans. I lost the tickets electronically. couldn't, I mean, luckily the Bears had somebody there with an iPad that found them. <laughs> Holy yeah. cow.
1: Yeah. Horrible. Yeah, but the the, days are just passing them along. Just uh,
0: yeah, yeah. let me let me tell you at um, I what I saw when Dave coached for Cleveland in 1997. We were at that ballpark, and then it was called Joe Robbie Stadium. I think this year for the Super Bowl, that same stadium, after it had a facelift of major proportions, is uh, Hard Rock Stadium or Field. Our seats, you know, and they've got four gigantic jumbotrons in every corner. It's a spectacular venue to watch a football game. And our seats were in the, um, I guess it was the second level, in the end zone. Um, And you'd say, okay, in the end zone, they're about the eighth row of the end zone. And every point the Chiefs scored was right in front of us. Spectacular.
1: Yeah, I'm usually the opposite. If I'm at a game, they're scoring on the other
0: end. <laughs> well, it couldn't have been better. The Chiefs scored in the first per- first quarter and the fourth quarter, and that was right there. So, it was, uh, you know, the last sporting event uh, with people at it that I that I'm going to go to for a while. But do you think there's going to be? And I'm not asking you for any inside information. What do you think about the football season upcoming?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I hadn't really, to be honest with you, you'd thought I'd been. That's all I'd be focusing on, but I hadn't really. It's so far away. uh, I just haven't really focused on that. I mean, it's. I I just, it's hard to comprehend it, but it can be done. Uh, Obviously, the players—they make the game. They—they obviously would have to react to it. Uh, hopefully but they you know they do OTAs and practice and they're pros they'll adapt to whatever environment the uh, the situation calls for so uh, I hope safely we can get guys out there playing and uh, you know obviously would love to do it the old traditional way but creativity at times uh, may
0: be needed when would the uh, if everything goes according to the schedule that's out there now when would you start officiating games what time of the year does that take place
1: yeah so for us uh for the game officials for us to kind of be active with the team starts kind of june early to mid-june when the teams start their otas and so we're starting to get involved with them then and then we have our clinic in dallas in july that i hope is you know, right now still scheduled. Hopefully we still show up, do that. And then right into training camps for the end of July, early August, and then right out of the shoot is the Hall of Fame game and right into to preseason. So uh, for us, it's it's really kind of so far just business as usual from the game official standpoint.
0: And for for most of us listening that don't really – Know the life of an NFL referee. Explain to me what you do at OTAs. That's interesting.
1: Well, uh, for us, it's a great time and we need to do more of it, but it's our time to spend with the players and the coaches about the upcoming rule changes, our philosophies, uh, what we're looking for at various positions. Because, you know, it's interesting as, as football officials, there's seven of us on the field, and I'm looking for specific things. The referee's watching specific things. The umpire's watching specific things. Uh, so we, we all have our little areas of expertise, if you will. So for me, I would go hopefully with the defensive backs, spend time with the, the defensive uh, backs, coaches, and players, you know, we have illegal contact. Some of the college, you know, the guys coming in from college, they don't right. have illegal contact in uh, in college. So that's a rule and a philosophy of how we call that rule that would be educational for them. And that's really where it starts. Jamie is is the smarter they are, and what they understand, what we're doing, and the smarter we get, understanding what they're doing, you tend to have a better officiated game. So physically being around the players and the coaches has always made me a better game official and the way the schedule lays out with the players and the work that they do. Hopefully we can spend more time with them as, as, uh, the seasons go on because it is just invaluable. And, uh, we really enjoy the interaction, and, you know, education's a great thing. So hopefully they get as much out of it as we try to
0: Yeah, it seems to, to me as a fan that the uh, illegal contact happens on virtually every play, so it's hard to tell, uh, especially with replay watching it on TV, how in the world you can figure out how not to throw your flag on every play. And then the other, the other thing that always seems to be a bouncing ball And not to get controversial, but the flag on um, pass interference just seems to, uh, you know, and and, and again, uh, as a fan, it seems like, and I'm sure the statistics don't bear this out, Greg, but it seems like in September, October, November, the volume of penalties may be different than uh, December and January. But again, I have nothing to back that up with, and I'm just... uh, I'm a Bears fan, so I'm always the the, uh, the underdog.
1: Well, the one thing about it is we, we you know, there's 119 of us, so there's 17 seven-man crews. We're from all over the country. We get together on a weekend to work the game, and we're all over the country. So once I leave the clinic, you know I don't see Jamie anymore because we're not on the same crew. You're out doing your thing, I'm doing mine. And the biggest thing is just to be as consistent throughout the country throughout there's two hundred fifty six regular season games and so if you turned any one of those on, what we try to do is is be as consistent in what we're calling as we possibly can and that's our biggest challenge is providing that product for the for the players and the and the coaches so they know what to expect and then the fans you know don't have to gnash any teeth wondering whether this is or isn't a foul. And so that's, that's, it will always be our biggest challenge. Right, I and, I, I, and I
0: think that's a hallmark of the NFL. I mean, I do think that uh, to the, the fan watching, uh, for, the, for the most part it is consistent. Uh, you know, some referees have more notoriety than other referees, and then with the side judge and the field judge, the back judge – I mean, you guys have to work as a team, and uh, you know, I think it's probably like umpiring. The good umpires aren't noticed, and I'm sure that's kind of your goal is to not be not be noticed.
1: Yeah, it's it, like I say, it's um, th- that's such a challenge of it, and it's and the game's different. If you watch college football on Saturday, that's not the same game that you're watching on Sunday. You know, the penalties may sound the same and are the same. You know, you have different types of players playing. And so we try to set a standard for the, for the players and the coaches. And the best way you do it is in the preseason and in the OTAs and the training camps to just try to see as much football as you can, tell the guys what you're willing to accept and not. And then, like I'm a back judge, so you need all 17 back judges throughout the country know singing out of the same hymnal looking at the same plays the same way and you know trying to get the big ones and throw the little ones back and, well and just and just give the guys you know a strike zone per se for the game and we're going to stay with it
0: on tv it looks fast it's got to seem incredibly <laughs> fast on the field
1: <laughs> these are the greatest athletes in the world and they're great people too I and mean, that's, that's the fun. thing about that Oh, it's they're so athletic. They're so, but they're such great people. The people in the NFL, the players—I mean, the draft, I guess, is Thursday—and you just see these new kids coming on. But I, you know, just the professional athlete—at least the, the the ones that I deal with and I'm around—are just such, just such great human beings. They're just great people.
0: Well, I'll tell you what—if your schedule gets you to uh, Chicago or Kansas City, let me know, and we'll. Uh... We'll go uh, if you have time. Grab a grab a bite to eat and and maybe a, a toast to our good buddy Nellie.
1: You bet, love to see you, Jamie.
0: All right, man. Thank you for sharing a little bit of your time. It's been great. It's been incredibly in- interesting and fascinating, and all uh, on a backdrop of reflecting a little bit on our good buddy Nellie. So thank you and and just have a safe time and get back out on the football field.
1: Thanks, Jamie. Appreciate you having me on. Take care. All time. right,
0: thank you, and okay. I'll be right back with you in a second. And uh, we are back after a great podcast interview with NFL referee Greg Meyer, formerly a TCU Horn Frog pitcher who got to know Nellie when he was a coach with TCU in 1979. Before he signed with the White Sox as a uh, as a uh, roving base running instructor and immediately promoted to the major league staff by Tony La Russa and Roland Heeman. But boy, did I enjoy talking to uh, Greg. Not only is he just a very, very generous human being towards open arms, home for children, but also... Uh, just a fun time to hear a little bit about what an NFL referee does and how he prepares for the season and what he's doing now in the offseason. So there's a little special treat for on the letters out of baseball. We deviate, take a little detour, segue, as they say, over into the uh, world of the NFL. So that was uh, that was a combo treat. We got Nelly at TCU. We got uh, Nelly after baseball. We got Nelly helping him out when he was. Going around the Midwest, uh, uh, applying his trade as a a bank executive, uh, speaking of Greg Meyer, and then uh, when Greg uh, became an NFL coach and got to know Dave through the golf tournament. So um, it's been fun. He's been a great supporter of open arms, and I'm very glad that he was able to uh, spend a few minutes with on the lighter side of baseball. So that is uh, uh, segment two, segment three, whatever it is. We will be back on the lighter side of baseball in just a few minutes. And uh, when we do come back, we hope to uh, maybe have uh, Jeff Newman. So we will be back shortly. Hey everybody, this is Jamie Retzke. We are back on the air on the lighter side of baseball and with no baseball, who better than to come on our show than a great friend of Dave Nelson's and a great friend of mine and a guy that I've known for a long time. I knew him before I even knew I knew him. Jeff Newman, how are you doing, man? (laughs)
2: Thank you, Jamie. I'm
0: doing great. Well, I'll tell you what. I was going to introduce you. You had a great career. You're a star to me. You're Nine years in the major leagues, postseason, made the All Star team. But on top of all that, you're a great guy, and you and Nellie not only were te- teammates, but you guys were good buddies. So this is—I uh, don't know if it's a sad day, but it's a two-year anniversary of Nellie's passing, and I am bound and determined to have fun. And I'm glad to talk to you.
2: It is, you know, I—it does not many days go by that I don't think of Davy uh and especially when you reached out uh to do this podcast it really brought back a lot of thoughts about davy and and memories because i didn't know what we were going to talk about i mean the questions and i just i i just thought back about all the fun times we had and with davy i don't remember davy ever having a bad day uh davy was always smiling uh he had more friends than there are sands in the, uh, on the beaches. Uh, and, uh, he is, he, he is truly missed and he was a gem, uh, when he was alive and he's still a gem in his, in, in his death. Uh, we miss him dearly.
0: Well, you put it very, very well. The, uh, The memories of Dave, I I told you I started this podcast because I literally would talk to Dave every day, and I would, of course, give him my wisdom on baseball, baseball strategy and scouting reports, and you could hear Dave go, huh, all the time because he never agreed. I I thought about having a show where I talked to Nellie in heaven, and then I figured, you know what? probably most people aren't going to think that's such a a, a great format for a show. So um, I have had a great time, but it's a lot easier when there's baseball to talk about until now. And it's easy to talk and reflect about Dave. And I know you guys were, I know for a fact you guys were close because Dave would, uh, Dave would let me know that a lot, not only when uh, you guys were coaches together in Cleveland, but after that. And what a great, Memory, what a great friendship you guys had. It's cool. I don't want to get too corny, but... uh, No, no. Uh,
2: You know, Davey and I go back all the way to the Oakland A's. Uh, Davey was actually my boss in Oakland uh, when I was a uh, roving instructor, uh, catching instructor with the A's after playing in the big leagues with them, and I went back and worked for them. And Davey was director of instruction, and it just... It just seemed uh, uh, after I left Oakland and then went to Cleveland and Davey came to Cleveland and coached with uh, my cargo, well, like myself, uh, it, it just – Davey was the, the boss. Uh, he, he never acted like a boss. He was just a friend, and uh, uh, he let you run with whatever you were going to do. With, with the players that you were in charge of. And uh, he was just he, – yeah, he, he just was a lovely guy to be around. And, and you uh, you couldn't help but have fun. There's a lot of stories about Davey. And, and when we were coaching together in Cleveland, uh, we would – yeah, I was coaching third. He was coaching first. And, you know, Davey knew everyone. I mean, like, everyone. And especially in, in Cleveland, he knew everybody that sat over by his spot at first base. And there were a lot of times that I would have to, uh, Hey, Davy, 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 you know, I was giving signs and, uh, and, and, and he was like, yeah, okay, I'm ready. And, uh, it was, it was, it, it was just a great, great time working together with Davy and, uh, Davey was, uh, introduced me to uh, uh, a lot of people. Uh, we used to go to a golf tournament down in St. Croix. And uh, I think I did it 10 years. Davey must have done it 15 or 20 years. And and uh, it was a blast. And uh, just to see how people reacted. About, I don't really mean to get this deep into it, but, but Navy, you know, I you start I'll rolling away it's hard.
0: He, he did have a big heart. He had, he had the ability to, uh, and people have said this in, in, in echoing what you and I've said, he had the ability to, uh, sit down with somebody that he didn't know, talk to him for five minutes and you would leave that, 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 uh, meeting or that experience thinking that you had a best friend for life. I mean, he, unbelievable.
2: It's true. You know, it was, it was amazing. We'd go out to dinner on the road or somewhere and we'd sit down and invariably, invariably, wherever we were, Davy knew somebody in that restaurant.
0: Yeah. And if he didn't, he'd know him by the time he left. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I mean, you, you, I'm laughing because, uh, uh, I got the uh, the benefit or the detriment of getting most of his uh, memorabilia, which he didn't keep in very good shape, but I was telling somebody he'd have baseballs from, you know, lots of, lots of guys, but also from like Len Berman or Bob Costas, Wayne Gretzky mm-hmm. and Wayne Newton, um, astronauts. I, I mean, just weird, weird things. And, you know, He's just kind of a, a guy that didn't need a computer to remember who your family was, remember everything about you. It was a, an amazing characteristic. Might have gotten him into trouble a few times, but I think it was okay for the most part. That is true.
2: Uh, that is true. Davy, uh, Davy was a person that uh, once you met him, you you'd never forgot him. You wanted to talk to him. You wanted to be around him, and uh, if he would come into town and didn't have a chance to call you, you were saddened and you were pissed and you told him about it.
0: Well, that's true, and, and I know that that St. Croix tournament that Bob Solis, I think, got Dave involved in, uh, you know, was for the benefit of Queen Louise, which was a, a, a really worthwhile Lutheran uh, home for children that were uh, – Disadvantaged, and and uh, that was to me as a baseball guy. And I think I was out there a couple of years when when you were there, and you had mentioned Dwayne Kuiper. He was out there. I mean, Nellie mm-hmm. kind of rounded up these guys. And the thing for me was, you guys were there for a week and couldn't get away from people like me. It was great. I mean, yeah. well,
2: <laughs> believe me, it, it it was fun for everyone. Uh, and I, I thank Davey every day that, that uh, we had together down there. Uh, he is he, – he gave so much of himself and to, to what organization he was with at the time. And uh, he, 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 he got so much memorabilia and, and, and gifts – for those kids down there, uh, and he was shipping stuff, shirts, T-shirts. Any place we went to that had a giveaway, he would ask the team, say, hey, you got any extras? Because <laughs> I've got this uh, organization, you know, uh, this orphanage down in St. Croix. And believe me, everybody just gave it to him, and it, 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 was, it was amazing. We'd go down there and see the kids, and you'd see all these different baseball shirts on them.
0: Right, and, he, uh, he did and, the same thing in uh, South Africa with exactly, the uh, home exactly. for open arms. Yeah,
2: you would probably swear up and down you were in Milwaukee somewhere.
0: It was funny because Bob Solis, who founded Open Arms Home for Children, had a, has a son Sammy who pitched in the major leagues, and so it was kind of a you know one day it was the uh, Washington National shirts, and the next day it was Uncle in yes. the Brewers. Man, they yes. they loved him. They love it.
2: Yeah.
0: but uh, those were the, those tournaments in St. Croix were fun. The uh, uh, tournaments that they put on for open arms were fun. I remember so much getting to know you a little bit. Most, I was telling another guy, I said 95, 96 and 97 were big because Dave didn't want to screw around with tickets. So he gave me all his family tickets. And instead of, and I really never liked to hang out in the locker room or mingle. You know, I wasn't. I wasn't good friends with Dave so that I could hang. They're with Lopkins. But but what benefit we had was we got to hang with all your wives, all the family. I mean, I just talked to a guy and a uh, buddy of mine, and he was talking about how he'd sit next to Tomy's dad and talk baseball. And uh, Oh, yeah. So we had the benefit of, you know, hanging around with uh, your wife, Asenbacher's wife during the games and, uh, and, mm-hmm. Mr. and Mrs. Tomy. And it was just a blast. And on top of that, two world series in three years. And, uh, you know, I keep watching game seven on TV with this COVID-19 and, uh, I just keep waiting for you guys to win game seven.
2: I know. You know what? Unfortunately, it's not going to happen. I guess not Uh, (laughs) because I relive it every time I hear about it. And, uh, we had it, you know, we had it, uh, but we didn't.
0: That is uh, the way the uh, unfortunately the ball the ball bounced. But when I uh, when we started the podcast, I introduced you that I knew you before I really knew you, and that was I had the uh, privilege and the honor of probably watching you uh, in six games over two years from my spot on the bench for the SMU Mustangs while you were a friggin' national collegiate hero. <laughs> Uh, for, well, not uh, quite that. Frogs.
2: Yeah, I, I I went to TCU, and of course, our rival was SMU, and uh, uh, I I enjoyed my time there. I am a Horn Frog forever, uh, but uh, Jamie, I don't remember you then.
0: <laughs> the only thing I think I the only memorable thing I did was strike out against Bird and the rest oh. of the, uh, and the university of Texas and and those guys, other than that, you know, Jeff, when you're sitting on the bench and your team goes six and 80, you figure maybe, uh, <laughs> maybe I ought to go to law school as opposed to sitting around here. But God, I love well, that. We, you,
2: you, you, you and I both faced Hooten and, uh, Bert Hooten tells a story I've been told that he says, you know, he was really the beginner of the knuckle curveball. Right. He had a good fastball and a knuckle curveball. And he says, you know, I've thrown one slider in my life, and it was to Jeff Newman when he was at the University of Texas. And he said, I won't ever do that again because he had a home run. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> uh. it, not that I was that good. It was just I was that lucky. And uh, I happened to do it in, in Austin against him in the old stadium that used to have a. Uh, like a mountain in center field that it was inside the field and they knew how to climb that mountain. And we didn't, a lot of balls were hit up there. and Of course that meant an inside the park home run for them because we couldn't climb up or knew the steps to get up. Uh, but it was, it was a great time. And, uh, yeah, so we both faced shooting.
0: Well, we did. Uh, you hit a home run and I struck out, but, uh, <laughs> Didn't they have goats out in the outfield back then or up on that hill?
2: It's, you know uh, I don't remember seeing any goats out there just a lot of devils that's you
0: know. That's because you were playing I mean <laughs> I had the uh, I had a lot of time on my hands and it seemed like they had scholarship athletes on folding chairs all the way to the foul pole and left field from my recollection of going down
2: yeah that's true.
0: The uh that is
2: true.
0: I'll tell you, Jeff, the other funny thing, and I'll get off my mediocre, horrendous, not even worth talking about co- collegiate career, but there's nothing worse than going to Lubbock, sitting on the bench and for a double header, because back then we'd play conference games. It seemed like it was a doubleheader and then a single game, and the doubleheader might have been seven innings and in this and the next day you play one getaway day. But right. I, had to, I had to not only sit in the wind, watching all the tumbleweed go by, but they rang that damn bell for the whole game. Now, you know, in a football game, you can do that, but in a baseball game, while you're on the end of the bench, oh, my God, I still have nightmares. <laughs> yeah, well,
2: there's a lot of, a lot of stadiums that, that I have nightmares in, and a lot of them are in the big leagues uh, and, <laughs> and minor league towns.
0: You had a great, great career I don't care uh you had a bunch of highlights you uh you were a spectacular catcher with one of the higher percentages of throwing guys out you uh played in the postseason games uh man I mean you you had it's it's so cool because all you guys in that what I call that era whatever that era is have so many friendships more more friends than memories and you have a lot of memories but my my belief is I could name anybody in that era and you would come up with not only stories, but you'd be, you know, still friends with those guys.
2: It is, you know, it's, it's, it's a fraternity. Uh, Just being a major league baseball alumni, uh, it it is a, a a family, especially uh, nowadays with, with what's going on with, with coronavirus that a lot of people have a lot more time on their hands. And so I have been in contact with a lot of ex-players, uh, ex-players that go back to the minor leagues, to the, to the major leagues. Uh, and it's a sad thing, but it's a good thing that, that we have reached out and, and communicated with old friends. And uh, it's just a shame what's going on in, in America today and in the world but
0: we'll get through it. We, we will, will get We will get through it. And I still hold out some hope that there'll be baseball and with baseball fans getting to go to the games. I mean, that's, that is, I'm, I'm sticking to it. I am sticking to being uh, unusual for me, optimistic and, uh, and I think we'll get through it. But one of the things I like to talk about on podcasts is a, how you got your baseball interest and, in, I know you gave it to your son, and I know you've got a grandson playing some baseball. So tell me about how in the world you got hooked on baseball and uh, how you passed it along to your uh, son and your grandson and maybe daughters. And
2: Well, it, it's, it started back when I was – I started Little League when I was seven years old, and you got to realize back in those days there was nothing but – just little league there wasn't t-ball there wasn't farm there wasn't it was just one yeah the league had seven teams eight teams and you either made the team or you didn't make the team but I made it at seven can't say I played much uh but I was on the team and I just like anybody back in those days uh from Fort Worth Texas we did not have a a major league team the Rangers weren't even thought about they were still in in washington and uh, so i was a yankee fan just like anybody back in the heyday of that era that the yankees were the world champions and winning all the time so uh playing wiffle ball in the backyard you know we, we were the yankees and, and so it's just it just grew from there and then i just kept loving it played it every summer and then I ended up going to TCU and then fortunately I was good enough to get drafted, uh, in the 26th round, I wasn't one of the higher draft picks and, uh, it, uh, it just, it just, it, it, it's an infectious career. It, it just, uh, it just gets in your, your blood system and you just can't get away from it. I went, to, like I said, I went to TCU and, and, Honestly, I went to TCU to play baseball. And fortunately, I got an education out of it and a degree. And uh, never – I guess I did use I, – I, my education was in, in education. And I never taught school, but I coached, which is teaching my whole career. And uh, even as a player, uh, especially as I got older uh, – when I was still active and uh, I felt like I was a coach at that point um, just because when you're not playing every day, uh, you want to contribute somehow. So you help the guy the display. Absolutely. And then, and then, and then uh, I, uh, my sons took it up. I have two sons. One is a pharmaceutical sales Uh, manager here in in the state of Arizona. And the other one works for the Chicago White Sox, the youngest one. Uh, And he is –
0: What's he do for the Pale Hoes?
2: He manages in their minor league system. He's been all the way up to – he didn't manage in AAA, but he was a coach at the AAA level for a while. Uh, He has managed A-ball, rookie league. High A, low A, double, uh, double A, uh, two or three years, uh, but he manages, and uh, he is—he's sad uh, sure. that he's not working. You know, he should be in Winston-Salem, North Carolina at the moment, uh, but I know that uh, uh, his kids are probably happy that he's still at home, but uh, his heart is still wanting to work and 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 sad that there is no baseball and at this moment i do personally feel like you do that that there will be baseball this year uh it will be the game of baseball will still be played is it baseball that we know probably not with fans and and a lot of travel and uh but i hope they come up with something that 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 will get us there. Uh, but anyway, yes. Let me get back to my family.
0: Uh, what, what, let me ask, I, you, what position did he play?
2: He was an infielder.
0: Okay. Yeah, uh,
2: uh, mostly short, third, second. Uh, uh, Didn't catch. Oh no! No, he was not stupid. Uh, <laughs> but I say that because I'm getting ready to say. That I have four grandsons, and they—they uh, they are nineteen years old, sixteen years old, eleven years old, and six years old. Wow. And of course, the six-year-old is still into coach pitch. That's not true. He is in double A, I think they call it now, uh, which is players pitch. And, um, and but then the the other ones, they they all catch uh the oldest one the 19 year old uh goes to division one uh utah valley university in Forham, utah and uh he's 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 a good player he's a very good player uh, and uh, the 16 year old is a junior in high school uh catches for the varsity team uh so they it's it is a Newman thing. Baseball is just – that's what we do.
0: That's awesome. Uh, that is it awesome. Is,
2: you know, and, and through this, this stay-at-home, uh, you know, I guess, you know, this time last year you're sitting there thinking, damn, we play – do we ever stay at home? Right. We have a game every night. One of the four are playing. Oh, I bet. Or, or on a weekend, you know, we're running from one ballpark to another to see all of them play. Uh, and so you, you gripe a little at that time, but now you're thinking, damn, I wish I was there.
0: <laughs> That's so true. Hey, let's, let's talk about, uh, getting drafted in the 26th round and getting to the major leagues. Now you obviously weren't a quote prospect that, uh, you know, they were all, um, uh, counting on. So your tenacity and determination and an obvious success is something that I think is an interest to everybody.
2: Well, it was. I At at TCU, I did make All-American. I was at third base. And uh, when I was drafted by the Indians uh, in the 26th round, uh, I went and I played third base, uh, outfield. uh, And rookie ball, you do have a position, but they – look at you at different places and to see where you'll fit in. And so I, at, after the first year, uh, that was back in the Vietnam War era, uh, days. And so I was in a reserve unit. And so I missed the first half of my second year in pro ball uh, going to uh, uh, basic training. And then when I came out, I became, we came back and they sent me to Reno, Nevada. And uh, I uh, played okay, played well, hit a few home runs, and at the end of the season, uh, Joe Looch was the director of instruction, came by and uh, said, Jeff, we would like to make you a catcher. He said, we feel like that's your best and quickest way to get to the big leagues. I said, give me a glove. (laughs) So that's how I became a catcher.
0: That's Uh, pretty cool.
2: Catch up until that point. And uh, I took my licks the first year. Uh, then, so the next year they sent me back to Reno to really learn how to, which is A ball, I A. And uh, I feel like a lot of times I chased more balls back to the screen than I caught. But uh, it was a learning experience, and uh, God willing, I learned and, and and got the opportunity. But getting back to the twenty sixth round. Uh, Yes, I was not a prospect. Uh, uh, And you find out real quick, you've always been one of the better players on the teams you played up to that point. And then you get to uh, your first spring training or your first team, uh, rookie league team, and you find out they're all good players. They were all the best of where they were. And, you, you know, you're just that little drop in that ocean. And uh, so you have, to, you have to work hard, and, and there, there is no sidestepping. Uh, so it was just, in my opinion, just a lot of hard work and tenacity to, to not be released. <laughs> and uh, thank the Lord I got nine years in and uh, made it a career after that
0: well you and nelly you know the same kind of deal they everybody told him to play football and um uh, he he got signed by uh the indians and came up uh through their minor league system as you well know and uh had that military duty during vietnam and had to go nope. on reserve duty and went back and forth between the minors and the majors and uh you know both of you guys had great great careers and then of course not only did your career, in my opinion, have a lot of bright spots, but your coaching, uh, and uh, I think uh, you got to be an interim manager for a week or two, and then uh, you got to uh, work for Major League Baseball, I think. So, I mean, God, you had a, you had a full, full career, in, uh, in, at least from my perspective.
2: Oh, it was. It, 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 you know, I gave it – I gave baseball – 30 years as a professional and uh, it uh, fortunately 22 to 23 years of that was at the major league level. Absolutely. And, and uh, it it was hard. You know, I missed a lot at home. Uh, When I say I missed a lot at home, high school baseball, I didn't see that much of my son's games. Uh, but, Everything else I was home for, so it was it was it was fun it was it was uh, i wouldn't I wouldn't change a thing
0: hey let's uh, let's let's uh i want to shift focus for a minute to uh go back to a little bit of uh the Indian success and yours and Nellie's um, I left Seattle a day before you guys clinched the pennant by beating a rather successful Seattle Mariners team. Tell me what that was like on the night that you guys won the friggin' American league pennant.
2: Well, you, you know, being in Cleveland and, and people thinking that nothing but losers come out of Cleveland. Uh, and when I say losers, I'm talking about baseball teams that, that, that didn't win. Right. And, uh, in 1995, we uh, we probably had the best team that I've been around. I've been been lucky enough to coach for. Uh, they were we it, 95 was the strike-shortened year, so we only played 144 games oh, okay. instead of 162. So our record that year was 100 wins and 44 losses. Wow. So, when you think about it, that's, that's quite a percentage. Uh, but it wasn't we – we had, in my opinion, all-stars at every position. Uh, Eddie Murray, either DH or first base. Uh, at that time, it was Carlos Baier at, at uh, second. Omar Vizquel at, at short. Uh, third base uh, was Travis Fryman or uh, Matt Williams. In the yeah. outfit, of course, it was Albert Bell in, in left, Kenny in center, and Kenny Lofton in center, and Manny Ramirez in in right, uh, and one of my favorite players, Sandy about Alomar behind the plate. So it was the games, the the games we won. Not just one player, you know, like Albert probably had fifty and fifty, fifty doubles and fifty triples, or or. And a hundred and something RBIs and Manny did fantastic. But on a, to win the game every night, if we were down two or three runs going into the seventh inning, they felt in their hearts and they had the attitude that 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 game's ours. All they knew that they had to do was get that starting pitcher out of the out of the game. That they could get to the relievers and then and by God, it happened. It just someone would come through, someone would hit a home run, and we we were down one into going into the bottom of the ninth or the top of the ninth, and someone would get on, and someone hit a two run homer, uh, hit, or hit a ball down the line, and and the run scores, and the next thing you know, Zach we win the game. It's it was it was awesome. It was magical.
0: Yeah. Uh, no, Nellie, uh Nellie called me from the clubhouse screaming and yelling, you shouldn't have left, you shouldn't have left. i tell you what, after you went through that lineup, no offense to Mr. Hargrove, but by God, I think I could have managed that team. Too. <laughs> what a club. What great. Yeah, but
2: you've got to realize managing is not really the X and O's on the field. It's what you do in the locker room and getting them ready and all-stars like that to play together. Have that, attitude. so he did a great job. Yeah. Um, but back to how he felt that night. It was a fit. I'll say this: all our wives and everybody, we were we were out in Seattle when we won, right? And so, and we're now we're flying back to Cleveland at what is it, one o'clock in the morning? And we're on a charter with our wives, the brass, everybody and i it was like a a macarena dance thon in the plane it yes. was it was so much fun and everybody was laughing and, and having a ball and uh, just it couldn't believe it couldn't believe it that that uh, we'd won the american league and we're going we're going on
0: that that what a great team Fierga, Vizquel, everybody. It was spectacular, but nobody was more spectacular than the guys that uh, were in the two coaches' boxes, you and my good buddy, Nelly. Well... Hey, Jeff. <laughs> that was... That was uh, those were great years for a fan like me to enjoy and had to be better for you guys.
2: Believe me, as as coaches, it was a fun time to be around the fans in Cleveland, uh, fans in general. It's just, you know, winning is, is infectious. And what we saw from the years prior to that in Cleveland, and then what happened when we were winning and successful, the city was transformed. It was amazing. You would see banners. Not not just during the playoffs, but building up to it. Uh that that whole year. It it uh it was fantastic. Uh,
0: well it was the uh it was the other side of the movie major league and thank goodness for you guys because yeah. what a what a great run. Hey man, I know that uh you have uh, been certainly a loyal, true friend to uh, our good friend Dave. It's been Really, really fun to reminisce with you. You were a guy that was closer to Dave than most, especially during the times when you guys coached together. And uh, I just can't thank you enough for coming on and, and talking a little baseball, talking a little horn frog baseball, and talking a little bit about um, our good buddy, Nellie, who was, as you put it, just as nice a human being as you could find on this planet.
2: I don't know one that was nicer. Jamie, I appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about Davey and, and just put a lot of great thoughts back in my head. It's, uh, I, I, I thank you very much.
0: Well, I thank you and hug your wife, Diane, and uh, we will, we will uh, wrap this up, but stay on the line and, and uh, don't go away.
2: You got it. Take mm-hmm. care
0: for jamie resky and for jeff newman we're going to take a break on the lighter side of baseball and we'll be back in just a few minutes hey everybody welcome back on the lighter side of baseball this is jamie resky i'm in overland park and today. Uh, We are privileged to have one of my good friends from high school, and uh, he was a high school sports star, he was a college sports star, he's a star in his own right, good friend of mine. He is the vice president, and I'll I'll promote him to the vice president of his uh, IHT Wealth Management, Dave Stone. Stoney, what's up, buddy?
3: Hey, welcome, Jamie. Good to hear your voice. Good to hear your voice. We'll have sports back sooner than later.
0: Uh, It it will. And during the uh, COVID-19, it's like, uh, you know, I have a uh, captive, not only captive audience, but I've got uh, people dying to do anything. Not dying, bad choice of words. People that want (laughs) to get on and and do anything. I'm going to do my second one with Dwayne Stats. And he goes, the only thing that's going to interrupt is reading a biography of James Mason. And I'm going, boy, all right, that's competition. (laughs) However, However, I was thinking this morning, I was laughing because you've known our good buddy Dave Nelson, and this is kind of a Nelly Palooza week. You've known Dave a long time. And uh, uh, I was laughing to myself because you have mentioned so many times that some of the most fun you've had is in a bar meeting new people. And Nelly had the same kind of propensity. He loved to go to a restaurant, sit at the bar, meet new people. Stoney would meet new people like schmucks like me while nelly would meet, meet new people like mick jagger paul mccartney uh Payne stewart so uh there you go pretty good guy in fact i think you spent a couple nights in a bar with nelly
3: i think the first time we i think it was burgos in the in the in the 80s and we were going to go to a, a chicago bulls game and we almost missed the tip off because we were having so much fun uh talking to the locals at the bar at Burgos in Chicago.
0: You know, that's the thing about you, Stony. Your mind is, uh, is still sharp as a tack, and you remember, uh, as, as I recall, I don't know if that's the night that uh, I know you had seats basically at the top of the key in the second row of folding chairs, and uh, we go bopping in there with uh, your VIP seats and Nelly. And I think Jesse Jackson came up to us one night and wanted to talk to Dave about doing some work with the, uh, with the rainbow coalition.
3: That's right. Jesse was, uh, was uh, sitting behind us and saw Dave and all of a sudden they, those two were laughing and giggling and, uh, it was a good night. A lot of fun.
0: Stoney's part of our great, our, uh, our mediocre golf team. We've played in a lot of Dave Nelson tournaments and, uh, uh, Stone is a very generous uh, contributor to Open Arms Home for Children, like a bunch of other guys. We had Greg Meyer, the NFL ref on uh, earlier today. So uh, first of all, how are you guys doing through this COVID stuff?
3: It's been uh, uh, like everyone, you just day by day. I, I took a walk yesterday with my five-year-old grandson and we walked over to the Hinsdale, Illinois little league fields and it's just so, here it is, springtime, and it's vacant. The, the, the band cages were locked up. The pitching kitchen uh, was closed. And here are a couple of high school kids by themselves, you know, hitting a bucket of balls, just trying to keep their swings. And it, 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 there's something missing when baseball can't start in, in the springtime. But it was good to see some people out, and, and uh, the sun will come out sooner than later.
0: Yes, and I think we'll have baseball before the, uh, before the World Series starts, but one can only imagine if fans will be allowed to go to the
3: games. It, it's, it's, um, I, I remember the first time Dave came up to see the Little League fields. It was a beautiful spring Saturday. He had a day off, and he came over. He walked around the fields, and there's four immaculate fields together. And uh, I said to Dave, what do you think of this picture? And he goes, too many adults. Uh, he, he always reminded me it was a it was a kid's game at heart.
0: That it was, and it was probably uh, a long way from the fields that he grew up with and uh, watched. But uh, you know the Hinsdale manicured fields, Nellie, I know he uh, he he would always spend a lot of time with uh, with me and with friends of mine. And uh, you were certainly at the top of the list. It was uh, it was fun. I, there were a lot of playoff games. I remember the, you know, it was a novel deal in 95 when the Indians got in the playoffs and I took you and a, another friend, Joe Ramey, uh, to Cleveland, it rained. And I don't think I saw you for the game.
3: <laughs> I'm a little more of a fair weather fan. I hate to admit it was, it was a freezing rain. Um, and, uh, because uh, the Indians back then were, were, were at the top of the game. It was a fun, fun thing for that city to, to go through in the mid nineties with, with all the stars they had. And of course, Dave was, was right there on the, on the, uh, on the bench helping out.
0: Well, he was indeed. And I, f- speaking of Fairweather fans, I think the game started at 10 ended about one thirty. And at my location, when Tony Pena hit the walk-off home run and the fireworks started going off was I was trying to go to sleep at the Marriott across <laughs> the street for the ballpark. So I didn't see that, but I did see a lot of other games and, our next guest later on is Jeff Newman, who was the third base coach for the Indians. So that was a good period of time. And uh, some other uh, times that you got to spend with Dave, I know that uh, uh, your kids got to meet him, got to share some time with him. And, uh, you know, that was Dave. He's just a great guy. He um,
3: uh, he was so genuine, uh, kind, selfless. Um, uh, he would do things that... that we were just so natural. And one time, it was after a Sox-Indians game. We were waiting outside the ballpark, and he came out. And my son, Matt, at the time was probably about 12. And he grabbed Matt, and they disappeared. And 20 minutes later, Matt comes out with Dave, and he's got an autographed ball from Frank Thomas. And for a 12-year-old boy to have that kind of experience, um, obviously, it, you know, changes your life. And, and Dave did it, you know, so generally and so uh, effortlessly. Um, it, it was just a, a wonderful, wonderful thing to see.
0: Well, I'll tell you, part of the podcast talks about, usually I like to talk to my guests about how they got the baseball bug, things that kind of kept that bug going and passing it along to, to your kids. And I know that you were a diehard football coach, a diehard baseball coach, and really spent a lot of Time over the years with uh, not only your kids but a lot of other kids. How did uh, how did that square with your love of baseball?
3: Well, you know, all of us that grew up in the in the fifties and early sixties as as kids, uh, yeah, I can remember living in in Indiana uh, in Fort Wayne, and we'd go to bed at night with a transistor radio underneath a pillow, and then when my mom would close the door, we'd turn on. WCFL, and there'd be Bob Elson and and Don Wells, and we could li- step a night and listen to the Sox on the radio. That um, just became part of your whole DNA. And then the first time I, I had the privilege of going to a Sox game live, I was nine years old, and we drove up from Fort Wayne, and somehow my dad had gotten tickets in the press box. And I was sitting next to this ornery old guy and all the other people said, you got to ask him for his autograph. So in the fourth inning, I finally took a program on over and asked this gentleman for his autograph. And it turned out it was Rogers Hornsby. And,
0: uh, My
3: he, goodness. Wasn't, <laughs> he wasn't I always, have, I hope you still have that. We still have that under, under, uh, it's in the safe deposit box. And, uh, but you're sitting there nine years old. And of course, at that time, I I wasn't a historian, but I I knew this guy was something special and sitting there, you know, it was was an August hot night and, and hearing him talk and and observe the game and uh, those things are what makes baseball such a special sport. Those things are timeless.
0: Well, I'll tell you what, grabbing a seat in the, uh, Press box at Comiskey Park. It doesn't get any better than that, other than, you know, asking a guy with a lifetime batting average of, what, about 350, 355? I mean, Hall of Fame, Rogers Hornsby, one of the – you know, he's got to be in the top 20 of all-time baseball players, if maybe even higher than that.
3: I, I got him a little higher, after, especially with that autograph. I wanted to be in the top five. Well, about that
0: same time, maybe a year or two later – um, I've told this story before, but I walked up, I worked up all my energy, all my courage. And I went up to a guy in the California, I guess they were the Los Angeles angels at that time. And it was Albie Pearson. And I finally got the courage to hand him a program and a pen. I said, Mr. Pearson, could I please get your autograph? And he goes, sorry, kid, I don't have it on me now. I mean, pissed <laughs> me off for, for, for a long time, I mean, uh, you had Rogers Hornsby, a nice guy, gives back to the game, and I had Albie Pearson. Oh, well. That's the, um, God, we could talk it, about the- uh, it, it was
3: August of 1959. The box seats were $2.50. Grandstand was $2.00. And all you could get, uh, the only beer at the ballpark was Ham's, which was $0.40. Cents. Did they serve you? Uh no, Mr. Hornsby was not in favor of alcohol, so they wouldn't serve a nine year old
0: <laughs> well, and uh when was the first time you had a brew at a ball game stony there's uh, uh certainly you've seen your share of ball games and and consumed your share of brew
3: well I think like a lot of Chicago area kids uh, when we sneak when we used to sneak down to either ballparks, Wrigley or Comiskey, we could hide out in the outfield and uh, let's just say a lot of the beer vendors were were more than generous.
0: <laughs> there you go. Well, that reminds me of your trip to Milwaukee for the World Series with one of our uh, good friends, man. That was legendary.
3: The uh, uh, Jim and I were uh, uh, one of our best high school friends. was an all high school all American swimmer. Um, uh, unfortunately, came down with uh, MS at a young age, but he was a diehard. Uh, baseball fan and uh, when he was in a wheelchair and couldn't get around too much he uh, the, the the milwaukee team was was in the world Series so he and i and another friend drove up and uh, were able to get into the ballpark and, and had great seats and I, I got up in the second third inning and go to the restroom and i came back and charlie had two beers and he said, "If you think I'm going to watch a World Series game and not have a beer, you're nuts." And uh, it, it was a memorable day.
0: It was a memorable day, memorable day for you guys. It was a memorable human being and a guy that uh, you have promoted with a memorial golf tournament to raise money for uh, swimmers at Hinsdale Central, our alma mater. And uh, I don't know how many years in a row has that that tournament through the good times and the bad times, uh, been able to
3: survive. Uh, We'll have our our 30th annual Charlie Neiman golf outing, uh, the the time to be determined based on the virus, but uh, we'll definitely have it here in the fall and it'll be 30 years since, uh, since we started the, the, uh, charity outing. Uh, it's a scholarship, uh, through Hinsdale central and, we're blessed because people come from uh, all parts of the country that are uh, either alums or swam or friends of the Neman's and it's uh, it's quite a tradition.
0: Well, it is indeed, and I, unfortunately, the last one got rained out for the first time I could remember. But you know, there weren't a lot of disappointed guys that were sipping a little brew at the golf course. So, uh, the older we get, the more we like the end of the golf day rather than the uh, beginning but speaking of golf and your spectacular golf game that you displayed year in and year out not only in Kohler but this past year when we moved the venue over to Minnesota oh my did we have a mediocre ball club or what?
3: Uh, we, uh, we, we came in the middle of the pack it's, it's been uh, the, the 10 years of the, of the Davey Nelson outing we've been blessed to play with a uh, 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 Robin Yount or uh, a couple other uh, maybe lesser known celebrities, but it's, it's, it, it's fun to see how people stay connected. And the, the game of golf is, is uh, um, gives us all a chance to have the camaraderie that we all want to have.
0: Well, in a tribute to Nelly, man, I mean, he would team us with uh, now Kenny Lofton may take issue with the lesser, uh, advocate, <laughs> but, uh, Robin Yant, these guys couldn't have been nicer. Robin Yant uh, was a tremendous uh, asset to the golf tournament, a great guy, a great friend of Nelly's. Uh, uh, we mentioned Kenny Lofton. We had Scotty Pesednik, who was a hero in the uh, uh, White Sox uh, playoffs. And then uh, the most fun I think we had was the more mediocre. And, and, you know, the listening audience doesn't expand. I can say whatever I want. Great guy. <laughs> We kept asking for him year in and year out because we had no pressure. Damian Miller, remember Damian Miller?
3: Damian is uh, 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 hes a kid at heart. Uh, here's a guy out there, a, a major league baseball player, and I think he had more fun watching you and I and a couple of high school friends play together. And uh, I think he certainly understands the, the, the importance to me of what sports are all about.
0: Well, you know, I think he was – these guys would all breathe a sigh of relief when they realized that we really didn't give a shit. And you can say shit, I guess, on, because the uh, FCC doesn't monitor the station. And we don't swear very much. But I think the players kind of always breathe a sigh of relief when they – they. it took about half of a hole, maybe the first drive, to figure out that we weren't really worried about winning the tournament. <laughs>
3: The, the other thing that sticks out is all those people that volunteer and support, uh, you know, they come up there, they take either a day off of work or maybe they're retired, but they take the time to come out solely because of, of, of Dave and his generosity and and how he would just connect with, as you say, with uh, people from all walks of life. Uh, it's quite a, a, an ability for someone like him that would, uh He would make people feel great. Uh, He would exude joy. Uh, He just had a great ability to make people around feel better and motivated them by just being such a generally super nice guy.
0: Well, you you summed it up, and I think because of Dave's Oh, exuberance and his dedication to op- open arms home for children in Coomga, South Africa, his loyalty to Bob Solis, who was the founder. Dave was on the board of directors. When Nellie passed away, it happens to be two years ago to the day today. day. Um, Randall uh, McDaniel decided to take up that golf tournament. And uh, I always want to call him Ronald McDonald, but Randall McDaniel <laughs> who, uh, you know, is, is like Dave in a lot of ways, pretty modest, fun to talk to, always has a good spin on life. And I never really recognized the number of Hall of Fames this guy's in. And then when you sent me the article where he was like, by some, one of the writers, nationally respected writer, listed him as the number one, what, left guard? in the NFL history?
3: He's voted the number fourth best all-time Viking, and they've had had quite a tradition up there in the Twin Cities.
0: Yeah, in fact, Alfred Anderson, that rookie of the year that was on our team up in Minnesota, another really nice guy and a good football player. Yeah, the Vikings every now and then beat up on our Bears. How about uh, some of the playoff games that you did happen to go to in 95, 96, or 97? I remember we, Baltimore.
3: We got over to Baltimore, and it was a, a they had a, a day game the next day, and we're up late at night uh, near the ballpark, and unfortunately, so were half of the half of the Indians. And Dave said, "I think these kids need to get a little more rest." Um, but there was a lot of fun to, to sit there and, and watch and observe Dave being part of the of the of the Indian franchise.
0: Yeah, it seemed to me that you guys may have stayed up pretty late one of those nights uh, looking out over the harbor drinking uh, some kind of liqueur, if I recall right.
3: It was a Civil War bottle that the owner had. Um, they kept special waiting for Dave to come back into town.
0: Isn't that amazing? I mean, and that really kind of typifies the uh, love people had for Dave, and it didn't matter uh, whether you were a shoe salesman, a government worker, uh, a professional golfer. Hell, he made best friends with the New Zealand uh, uh, cup team, the, uh, the the boat guys. What do you call those guys? The uh, uh, America's Cup team from New Zealand. Yeah. Uh, I've got some of Dave's autograph. Wayne Gretzky and Wayne Newton. Now, figure out how you get from Wayne Gretzky to Wayne Newton or Payne Stewart, Tommy Watson, uh, Len Berman. I mean, he, he, uh, he just, uh, you know, he didn't take all the greatest care of these autographed balls, but uh, the ones I could salvage. I'll tell you what, also, I found that I thought were so cool was balls from, uh, among others, Brooks Robinson, Al Kaline, and Kurt Flood personally written out little notes to Dave, thanking him for his friendship, for what he's done for them. Kurt friggin' flood. How (laughs) cool is that? Kaylin Robinson, all that stuff. And then the other funny thing I remember in, uh, in, in Baltimore was we finally get to our seats and, uh, you and I had had a few pops before we got there and Nellie always got us his family tickets and we were sitting, Uh, behind Kevin Seitzer's wife, who was reading a book. I mean, we're at a playoff game. She was, at that time, married to one of the guys in the starting lineup, and she's reading a book in a mink coat. Do you remember what happened after
3: that? I forget what happened right after. We probably spilled a beer on her coat.
0: Yeah, there you
3: go. (laughs) So, so, story... I remember uh, sitting with Jim Tomey's dad, and we struck up a conversation, and, and uh, I, I said, boy, you should be awfully proud of your son. And he goes, well, he said in Peoria, he said the, the, the best home run hitter in Peoria is, is, uh, is Jim's sister, not him. <laughs> so you can see where Jim had got his modesty and humbleness from his, from his dad.
0: Yeah, and I think his sister and brother both were good baseball and softball players, respectively, but that's great. And that, you know, here again, look at all the uh, fun people, family people uh, we got to hang out with. I was talking with Jeff Newman about his wife, Diane. I remember Paul Ossenmacher's wife, because we didn't get to hang with the ballplayers. We got to hang with the families. That's right.
3: Yeah, it's – just, they, they all, they all had that connectedness with Dave. I, I um, bumped into Tommy, Jim, in a local restaurant here in Hinsdale, right toward the end. And uh, I went up to him just briefly and said, Jim, I just want you to know, I, I, I got off the phone with a good friend. And, um, you know, I mentioned about Dave's condition and his eyes just wide open. He says, oh, man, I'm so glad you stopped and said something. Says, I, I need to call him right away. And you could just tell by as soon as I mentioned Dave's name, um, you know, the 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 connectedness, the joy that Jim had by, you know, having a mutual friend like like Dave was so special.
0: Well, and that that uh, Cleveland run that they went on 95, 96, 97 was special. And you know, Nelly it, you know, just I won't even say made friends with those guys. I mean, he was more than that, to Albert Bell and to Kenny Lofton and to Roberto Alomar and to Sandy Alomar and to on and on and on. These guys, uh, who was it? Uh, Scotty Eyre, who pitched for the uh, Cubs and the White Sox and three other teams was on the other day. And he's saying, you know, we were visiting Cleveland and I went into the uh, training room to ride the, uh, the elliptical. And who comes in but this black dude in a you know nice looking, Uh, in a Cleveland uniform and starts uh, talking to me about baseball and about pitching and about how to handle myself and how to care. And he said, you know, formed a lifelong friendship. And as, uh, as life would have it, he ended up moving four doors down the street from Nellie in uh, Lakewood Ranch, Florida. So he just, you know, it's true. His, uh, his contact sheet on his phone was like a hall of fame. I mean, it's just unreal, just unreal. And then, you know, he just had that, uh, dedication to people and dedication to baseball and, uh, just, just fun to be around. You got to have another story or two about Nellie. I know you do.
3: Well, there, there, there might be for another chapter, but, um, just trying to recall some things, but he, he, um, it was such a natural gift uh, that he had with people and he was blessed with all that athletic skills, but his real gift was, was his, his gift for others, his gift for life. And uh, uh, I, I'm not sure who, who, who quoted it uh, originally, but there's that phrase I heard years and years ago when I first met Dave, um, Dave Nelson never had a bad day in a ballpark. And I, now that he's passed and gone, I kind of think he probably never had a bad day, period. And he um, he got up in the morning, uh, whatever adversity was out there, in a day and age where we have social media and people can vent and voice, you know, some, some negative feelings. I, I don't think Dave ever had that in his, in, his, in his body. He was always able to look at life as half full, and uh, we all were better for it.
0: We were indeed. Well, I appreciate spending some time with you this morning, taking some time out of your busy COVID-19 schedule. I will uh, look forward to our next podcast where we talk about Fox to Aparicio to Kloszewski. I want to go to the safe deposit box with you and see that Rogers Hornsby autograph. You have a lot of other memorabilia. You're kind of an understated memorabilia guy. Well, we had a,
3: a thing back then. Life was different, but my dad said, you know, when we get these autographs, you have to get them. So I've got a World Chamberlain on a program, and he was seven feet two, and Hornsby and Musial and obviously a lot of the, the, the Chicago players, Fox, apparicio et cetera, but you had to lean over the fence, and you had to stick your program out and have your pencil ready, and uh, – and that's to me is, is, uh, when you ask someone for their autograph, you get it. It's, it, it's a, it's a, it, it, it's a childhood dream that we all cherish. And, and, uh, um, uh, it, it just makes sports to me. So, so connected for us. And that's why with this COVID virus, not having live sports for so many of us is, is, uh, uh, is pretty tough, but it'll come back. It'll come back gradually, and uh, people will be going back out to ballparks and and, and celebrating the celebration of life, and, and we'll be all better.
0: Well, no matter how many times I watched Game 7 of the 1997 World Series that I attended, the friggin' Indians keep losing that game. <laughs> and I watched the 2016 Game 7, Starring the Chicago Cubs, and I still swear at Madden for some of the pitching moves. And the game <laughs> like, come on, get with it. But God, your transistor radio, that was that was our life in the 50s and early 60s. Dwayne Statz talks about that. He talks about listening to the Houston Astros. He listened to Joe Buck do the Cardinal games in the Midwest. There were a few different towns that you could get that that uh, they were strong enough but i mean when you talk about wcfl and now bob elson is a guy that that's going to come up but not don wells that's a pretty good one i like that
3: i can remember those two and, and uh, of course you know back then my 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 mother was a big she's from ohio and was a big uh, indians fan and she would always have the radio on no matter what cooking or doing laundry or whatever the radio was always on, and of course that was Lou Boudreau, and, and she uh, inst- instilled that in her three sons, that be- baseball is a quiet game you can listen to on the radio, you don't have to see it. And you could, to me, the, the announcers across the country, uh, the, 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 think of all the people right now in nursing homes and seeing their apartments and condos or whatever, and right now, there's no baseball for them to listen to is is awfully tough. Yeah. And, uh, it's, it's part of the American culture. And um, I can't wait for it to come
0: back. I agree, man. I mean, you say that, and I start thinking of the Loyola Ramblers and Red Rush and how he poetically would, uh, you know, get to his corky belly. Soars, he scores, it's through for two Loyola by four. The crowd wants more timeout Marquette. You had uh, Red Rush trying to come over to do baseball. But, God, the baseball broadcasters, you know, in, in our era, Vince Scully and Kurt Gowdy and even Cosell and Costas when he was young. And I love, I've said, Euchre. I could listen to Euchre. You just, you know, hope he lives forever. Dwayne Stats, Tom Hamilton with the Indians. So, yeah, I mean, that's a – I think that that and food are the two reasons I really love baseball.
3: <laughs> And, you know having dave up in the box for so many years you know he would invite you or I or our kids up and just to be able to stand in the back of a of a broadcasting booth and and watch out how, how the professionals would describe the game and no one to take the right pauses and 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 connect with the audience is is a is a true gift
0: it is indeed and and dave was lucky to work with dwayne stats and uh Harry Carey and Tom Hamilton and, uh, uh, visiting with Dwayne, I go, you know, I was up in that booth and for the post games where you and the producer would cut to the highlights of the game and you would just give them crisply like, and in the seventh inning, you know, boom, 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 hit the, you know, a, a great shot into the gap. And so, I mean, it was, you know, back then it wasn't digital. These guys were on the fly. It was amazing. So it, it really I, love, is. I love it indeed. Stoney, you're awesome, man. Uh, well, thank you awesome. for
3: calling. Thanks for checking in. Um, it's a great country. Uh, we'll get back together, and uh, we'll come out of this better than ever.
0: Well, your optimism will be rewarded. You're a, a good friend, and uh, I know Nellie loved uh, having those opportunities to spend time with you and your family. So go Cubs, go Sox, go Bulls, and go USA, and we will talk to you soon. Stay on the line, I'm gonna just pause for a second. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, the end of three exciting segments, and uh, friends of Dave Nelson, we put them all together, and we hope that you enjoyed listening to Greg Meyer, who played at TCU when Nelly was a coach there, shortly before becoming a minor league roving instructor with the White Sox. He held that position for about three and a half seconds before they promoted him to the major leagues to be the first base coach and uh, he may be the only person in the history of White Sox baseball or maybe even the major leagues to have been promoted from the minor leagues to the major leagues for the sake of uh, coaching uh, based upon uh, half a day with the organization. Rapid rise because of the skill set, not only the personality, but the skill set that Dave had in terms of being a base running coach, a first base coach, and an all-around good coach for the players on the White Sox in the 80s. Then we were joined by a good friend of mine, Dave Stone, who was a star athlete at Hinsdale Central High School, uh, my alma mater, and where Dave Stone went. And he just rocked in basketball and track. Who would have believed he was a high jumper if you looked at him now? Maybe a shot putter, but not a high jumper. And then we finished up with a good friend of Dave's and a person that I've gotten to know and respect through the years, a gentleman by the name of Jeff Newman. I watched Jeff unbeknownst to me. I didn't know who Jeff was when I was watching him. But as I sat on the bench at SMU, I watched Jeff Newman have an All-American two years at uh, TCU. And uh, who'd have thought? We've had two people and one, one podcast from Texas Christian University, horned frogs forever. And Jeff Newman had nine good years in the major leagues. Then he went on to coach and uh, actually worked for Dave, as uh, we heard in the podcast, when Dave was the uh, minor league uh, director of instruction for the Oakland A's, and uh, Jeff got to coach with Dave in the good years in Cleveland. So we hope that you have gotten a good variety of the flavor of uh, uh, Dave Nelson and the tremendous Friendships that he was able to cultivate through the years. We hope that uh, you've enjoyed the podcast, and we hope that uh, you will tune in for our next podcast. It'll come to you from a group of folks in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and uh, that should be coming up in the next week. And we'll be reflecting for the final time of this era. All about Dave Nelson and the memories of Dave and the golf tournament that Dave put on at Whistling Straits. So, for Jamie Rutsky on the lighter side of baseball, I hope you've enjoyed all three of these interviews. Stay tuned for more exciting podcasts on iTunes, on Spotify, on SoundCloud, or you can go to my Facebook. If you can find it, I can't even find my Facebook. Man, do I need to get to Instagram and do a little tweet so that I can promote this great show, get some pictures, and get down the road. Until then, Jamie Rescue signing off saying be safe, stay healthy, and have a good day. Thank you.